There are a lot of people out there walking around with complex PTSD and they might know they have it, they're talking about it, they're kind of doing something about it, but mostly they're just suffering with it. They're not getting better. You might be someone who's lived your whole life afraid that you're gonna become one of those people, like stuck in your trauma, never being happy or loved or fulfilled or financially stable. And granted, it's hard to know when you're first starting out on your healing, what's gonna work for you. But if you never really tried, you're not gonna find out. On some level, even though you work hard and you struggle with this, you might feel that you've kind of half-assed your life and your healing in particular, and maybe you haven't taken the steps that you know that you would need to take to actually heal and change your life. I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and in this video, I wanna encourage you to take your healing seriously, to double down on it so that you can heal. And I'm gonna lay out 10 things that you can do if you're ready to move forward with that, all right? Now, obviously, not all of these will apply to you, but these are the 10 things that worked for me. And I'm gonna tell you what they were. And when you've heard everything that I'm gonna to explain to you about them, you can pick one or two. You can pick the most important ones. And I would encourage you to take the ones that are causing you the most pain, but also that are actually fixable for you right now. Pick things that you can win at as your first goals. You might be able to hear there's like three chainsaws going outside right now. It's a full on Texas chainsaw massacre out there. So I think they're gonna be like using those all day. There's not really anything I could do about it. And I wanted to tape this video anyway, because I wanted you to have it. So number one, you can do this one. Learn what complex PTSD is. Not just what you've heard on the internet, not just what other people say about it, and not focusing all your energy on what might be the diagnosis of the people who hurt you. That's not the same thing as understanding what's going on with your brain. Learning about your brain, about dysregulation and what that does for you, uh, emotional regulation, and then when you have a sense of yourself, then it's a great time to start learning what other people did to heal. Number two, when you look at yourself and how you're doing, be willing to notice some of the problems that maybe have nothing to do with trauma. Now it's true, CPTSD can make it hard to focus. It, uh, it can make it hard to be consistent, to be kind and considerate as you wanna be. It might make it hard to stay present. It might have damaged your relationships. It might have damaged your health, okay? So all those things are out there. But everybody has a couple problems that are just kind of ordinary human problems. So it could be something like maybe you're often late. A lot of people struggle with that. You don't have to be traumatized. Trauma could be implicated in that. But sometimes that's one of the things that you just have. And the reason I love the problems that are just kind of like normal person problems is because they're a little easier to solve. You don't have to heal your brain necessarily to get that going. It could be that you need to keep your kitchen cleaner, that the whole kitchen like smells like garbage all the time and when people come over, you're ashamed. I know how trauma can drive that kind of thing, but it's a, it's a problem that anybody might have and it's a solvable problem. I love low-hanging fruit problems, things that you can solve quickly and get a little win. Number three, prepare to move your stories about the abuse and neglect that happened to you out of present time looping thoughts and into what I call the memory bucket. If you can imagine, there's a bucket. So it's a different thing, isn't it, when something that happened in the past is still activated in your mind and you, you get emotions every time you think about it. You might start crying or you might fill, out, fill up with adrenaline and your heart pounds. It might scatter your thoughts. So that's what I call an electric thought and it's activated. 
When a thought is in, when a memory goes into the memory bucket, it's it's deactivated. You can remember it. If anybody asks you a question about it, you can remember all the same details about it, but it doesn't trigger this huge physiological and neurological response in you. So it's the memory bucket. So when I say get ready, one thing you could do is start to write about it, to start being truly like open-minded that you could be okay without this. And if you if you feel anxious at the thought of like surrendering your fear and resentment about the world, I would just say do it a tiny bit at a time. Do a little bit at a time and see what happens and just see if when you surrender fear about something, does it incapacitate you? Does it make you a doormat? It's not been my experience that it does. In fact, it makes me more empowered. It makes me more clear about when something dangerous is in my presence, when I need to act on it. So you can try that for yourself, little bits, all right? Number four is stop trying to make other people not trigger you, <laughs> all right? So if you get very triggered by people, and pretty much everybody with complex PTSD gets triggered by people, and that's what makes people hard. That's what makes us have a tendency to want to isolate or keep people at arm's length. Those interactions get so triggering. So there's a misunderstanding that if we could just get other people to stop behaving the way they do or saying what they say or making us feel the way we feel, then we would be okay. And sometimes that's true, um, but it's usually not true that you even could, that they could stop triggering you even if they wanted to with all their hearts. The central problem is that we get triggered. The empowered approach is to maintain your control over that, to learn to calm your triggers. Now, when you can learn to calm your triggers, for one thing, you're not so triggered and you become perceptive and you can begin to tell if someone in your presence who's been hard for you to hang around, are they actually a great big problem for you or are they okay? It's just that you have triggers. That's called discernment. That's one of the biggest things that we lose with CPTSD is that ability to discern. There's so much confusion walking around like, is it just me or is this person a real jerk? And you can begin to have discernment about that. And what a relief, what a relief to be clear. Like this person doesn't belong in my life. This person I love, they're awesome. And I'm going to make, make this relationship better and safer for them by calming my triggers. All right. So you have the power to do that. The other great thing about learning to calm your triggers is that you become flexible you become able to hang out with a variety of different people. You can be in all kinds of circumstances. You don't have to be so particular and have so-called boundaries about, I don't do this, I don't eat that, I never let people say this, I can't stand hearing it, you know. You can start to be flexible and just sort of let life happen around you and be discerning about it, mostly okay with it, but knowing when it's time to step out of a situation if you need to, have a boundary, right? When you can do that, CPTSD gets held back here. If you have calm triggers, it cannot get the better of you because that's basically what it is. All the bad things that come with CPTSD, the cognitive, the memory, the relationship problems, right? The health problems, the headaches, the stress, all of that can't get activated if you don't get triggered. So there's your superpower, okay? If you were to do one thing, just start bringing it in and learn how to notice when you're triggered and bring it down. Now, learning to notice dysregulation and a triggered state in ourselves, that's a huge piece of what I teach in my eight-week coaching intensive. And that's a program that I teach now and then. You may have seen it. Um, and we go all the way through, you know, what happened, dysregulation, triggers, disconnection from people, self-defeating behavior, learning to own our healing. And finally, in like the eighth week, we're working on bringing your talents into your life, 
all the stuff that was suppressed by all the stuff earlier in the chain where you were too dysregulated to connect with people or do what you're capable of doing. The point of our healing, it's not just to feel better. You do have to feel better. You do need that. You deserve it. But when you do feel better, the real point of healing can begin. And that's you becoming yourself and delivering the gifts that you have to bring to the world. All right. If you're interested in that coaching program, you can, that'll be down there with all the things down below in the description section. All right. Number five, this one's kind of high level Jedi stuff. Stop trash talking the people who you choose to have in your life. It's very common for people who don't have CPTSD to just throw labels, you know, they're a narcissist, they're toxic. But if you really want to heal, if you want to double down on your healing, I encourage you to stop using those labels on people and instead just start noticing whatever you call it, the thing that other people do or have that's so troubling for you. The thing you're focusing on your healing is the way that you get troubled, the way that your emotions rise up or you get dysregulated, right? That's the part. That's the part where you actually have influence over what happens next. So whatever you want to call them there, if you've ever had luck telling somebody, Hey, you're a narcissist. I think you really ought to read this book or something that never works. <laughs> you probably noticed that it never works. People are going to be people. Now you don't have to keep these people in your life. The more you recover, the more you're going to get clear about who should stay and who should go. But, Focusing on yourself is always going to be your superpower. Focusing on, oh, this is where I get triggered. Because if you get triggered around somebody who is, I don't know, a psychopath, you're going to be really defenseless against whatever harm they're going to do to you. You want to be grounded. You want to be lucid, clear-headed, clear-eyed, perceptive, so that you can make good decisions about how to proceed when somebody begins to treat you badly. And if somebody's treating you really well, of course, you want to be at your best. You want to be able to open your heart and enjoy that relationship. Number six, stop clinging to bad relationships that make you miserable. Now I got to bring this in, in any discussion of what it means to double down on your healing, staying in bad relationships and hemorrhaging all your energy and your cognition to a situation where you're fighting all the time, you're being treated in an abusive manner, um, you're, you're being disrespected, <laughs> you're sad all the time. It's going to be really hard to heal your life in those circumstances. So I understand there are relationships where there's, there's an obligation, a duty. If, if, if you have children who are minors, if you, for the time being, have no financial means to get out, and I mean none, because I really think that living humbly is a lot better than staying in an abusive situation. Or if these are parents or family members who, you know, have dementia, and even though they're treating you badly and it's miserable, you, you're honoring them by caring for them and making sure they're cared for. All right. So I'm going to set that aside. I'm not really talking about situations that are complicated by duty and promises. I'm talking about things like boyfriends and girlfriends who don't treat you well and who suck the life out of you and who are going to prevent you from moving forward with your healing. All right. Number seven is the same thing, but for jobs, don't stay in work that makes you miserable unless your life depends on it. There are times when we all got to do what we got to do to get the paycheck, right? But not forever. Don't let that be forever. And if the paycheck is not the problem right now, I want you to ask yourself, is being miserable at work the way that you avoid facing responsibility for your life. And I talk about this very directly because it's something that I've had to face myself too. There was a lot of time when I was still at the effect of CPTSD where 
if I weren't miserable, I would have to notice immediately that there was this giant hole in my life where, where close relationships were supposed to be, that I had superficial relationships. I was getting my self-esteem off the fact that I had a job, but I was not happy and I didn't like the way I was treated. And I stayed years working for an awful boss, years. And, and then I bounced around to a couple of awful bosses. The problem was in here. The problem was in, in the work that I was accepting for myself, in my unwillingness to make changes and to do the growth and the learning that was gonna be necessary for me to take that step up. And it's hard. And I, I had to do it as a single mom. I ended up completely unemployed as a single mom. And I just wanna say, I realize I don't have the worst problems that anybody's ever had, but to a large degree, if I could do it, if I could get going and create a way to make a living that suited me and that was a respectful, self-loving, <laughs> creative, enjoyable kind of work for myself, I just think a lot of you can too. And for those of you who, are, who, who have other extenuating circumstances that are keeping you stuck, feel the truth of what I'm saying. Let it guide you. Don't ever let um, a sense of giving up or a sense of avoidance hold you back from moving forward to the kind of relationships and work where you belong, where you belong. All right, number eight, detach from the belief that you passively just magically attract bad people. I hear people say this all the time. I attract narcissists. Well, acknowledge that the issue is not really who is attracted to you. The issue is who you get attracted to, who you tolerate, who you date, who you sleep with. That is the problem. And that's a much better problem to have than some sort of magic pheromone attraction to sick people. And it's true, like people who want to exploit others, they might look for people who are weak, people who have no boundaries, people who are not defending themselves. So no, don't be that person. Don't be that person who can tolerate it. I think that uh, bad people are seeking out people to exploit a little less than sometimes they're given credit for. I think they're just knocking around looking for people who will tolerate them. And that's kind of, you know, that's not really any different than anybody else. So it's your tolerance, it's your boundaries, it's your red light detector that have to switch on. If you're gonna double down on your healing, you're gonna have to do this. You're gonna have to take responsibility that you are the gatekeeper. And you may have heard me say, you know, I attract mosquitoes, but they, I don't marry them. <laughs> I, I don't, what I attract has nothing to do with what I attach to, okay? All right, number nine, if you have addictive behaviors, make recovery your first priority. Alcohol, drugs, food, pornography, spending, all that stuff, your healing, will get an enormous boost when you allow yourself to experience life's ups and downs and show up for it and not escape it. Now I have CPTSD too. I know how tempting it is to try to grab on and control things or run away from them or just get into some kind of oblivion. And it, it's almost universal with people with CPTSD. It's gonna take one form or another. And just because it's not heroin doesn't mean it's not terrible. So I'm not gonna get into all the means that people have to recover from these specific addictions, but what I wanna to say to you right now is if you have an addictive tendency, just move that to the very, to number one spot on your list of how you're gonna double down on your healing. If you're escaping, if, if you're using anything at all to sort of escape life's ups and downs and those feelings of disappointment and stress and emptiness and loneliness, I totally know what it's like. But if you're using something to escape that, you cannot recover from it. It's almost impossible. And I mean, look around, look around you at people who have, who have these kind of struggles. 
look around at people who once had the struggles and got better, the path towards healing always involves facing what's going wrong. And your life, even when you're perfectly healed, which nobody's gonna be perfectly healed, but even if you were, life is gonna have ups and downs. You're gonna lose friends, big disappointments will happen, outside events will happen. You're gonna need a means to be able to handle what comes. And that is true freedom when you feel like, whatever happens, I'll be able to face it. You can't just beat yourself up, you can't just read a book. All of, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of ways that you can heal, but one of them is gonna to have to be a way that you self-comfort and bring yourself back out of dysregulation and into re-regulation. And when you have that, you'll find it a lot easier to overcome addictions. All right, number 10, sit down and ask yourself. It's just a thought exercise, I really like this one. Ask yourself, if I really had to solve this problem, what are 10 things I could do? And I love doing this. I apply it to all kinds of problems, but it's a really good one to do about how you would heal from your complex PTSD. Because you actually have the answers in there. You know a number of things that you suspect would be really helpful, but you just haven't had the, the energy or the focus to take them on right now. So make a list of them. You still don't, you don't have to take them on all at once, right? But make a list of them. Just like bring them into the sunlight. Let them in. Just let them into your mind and heart and see what happens. Childhood PTSD is, in its essence, an injury to our ability to connect with other people. And if this happened to you, you were robbed of your birthright to be well enough loved and properly guided into the web of human connection that's all around you and on which the richness of your life and even your survival sometimes depend. I know from personal experience that life with complex PTSD doesn't always let us have the love and belonging that are essential to happiness. What's simple for other people, like just being in a group, having a friend, feeling a sense of belonging, or recovering from a conflict with a coworker, these can be so fraught for us. Even in adulthood, the people who become your friends and coworkers and loved ones, and your ability to connect with them, will likely be the single biggest factor in how your life turns out. Now thankfully, no matter where we begin, we're all capable of increasing our capacity to love and connect with others, even later in life. But yes, it takes work. We now know that abuse and neglect early in life can literally change your brain and restrict the normal cognitive processes that enable you to seek out and connect with good appropriate people to bring into your life, to intuitively know how to interact with them successfully and to detect red flags so you can avoid people who should not be led into your life. The loss of connectivity is the most tragic part of childhood PTSD. To be capable of love, but not to be able to sustain a normal loving relationship is a devastating price to pay for what happened. But the great news is you can absolutely make progress in this area if you are intentional about it. If you just kind of leave it to chance and hope you'll figure out love later in your life, or maybe when the right person comes along, I'll be honest with you, it's not likely to get better. It turns out that having and growing our connections with other people is one of the most powerful ways that we can heal our trauma. There's a large body of research emerging that shows that loving relationships actually help us heal not just our bodies and not just our emotions, but even our telomeres. Those are the little caps on the strands of DNA in all of our cells, and they protect us from disease and slow down aging. So connection is vital to life.
And yes, some feelings of loneliness and disconnection are universal experiences for everyone, at least a little. But for us, it can kind of take over our lives and drain us of anything good. This has everything to do with brain and emotional dysregulation, something very common for people who grew up with trauma that can make connection very difficult. And it has also to do with re-regulation, which makes change in this part of ourselves possible. But for now, put really simply, dysregulation is a tendency that's common in traumatized people and in everyone to some degree to experience nervous system bumpiness when they're under stress. So you might feel panicked or overreactive or discombobulated or numb. Now being prone to slipping into a dysregulated state can seriously challenge your ability to connect. It's very common for people with childhood trauma. It's hard to read nonverbal cues, for example. It's hard to express emotions in a way that doesn't push people away. And it's hard to handle hurts when your brain and emotions aren't quite aligned with what's happening right in front of you. So dysregulation prevents connections, it puts pressure on connections, and it breaks connections. Re-regulation, and I'll teach you how to do that, puts you in a place where you can learn to grow and maintain and repair connections. So if you've never learned to intentionally get re-regulated, then getting the skills to do it is going to be life-changing. For me, it's been a long process. I was born to loving parents whose alcoholism and addiction set the stage for abuse and neglect for my siblings and me, starting when we were pretty small. The violence in our house eventually stopped and there were definitely good things about my family, but the neglect never ended. And I grew up feeling a grinding sense of loneliness and shame and isolation. And I used to think it was me, maybe because we were poor, maybe because our house was so messy, or maybe I was some kind of unlikable kid. And I mean, trauma can make kids kind of edgy, but I think I was a pretty good kid. I was really stressed out all the time though about a lot of arguing and tension in the house. And by middle school, I had to kind of fend for myself to scrounge up lunch or clothes or even money for the laundromat. I spent a lot of energy hiding our home situation from other people and hiding all the creepy encounters with potential abusers outside the family. Uh, the kind of person that tends to sort of shadow kids who aren't supervised and who don't have clear boundaries. But despite all this, I did okay in my young adulthood. I was fairly accomplished as a student and I was creative, I was responsible, and I made friends with interesting and exciting people. I had my first long-term relationship, but I couldn't sustain the good things in my life. And by the time I was 30, I'd quit the job and I left the boyfriend, not because I was moving forward, but because I was falling apart. And that core loneliness was getting louder and louder. It made me selfish, it made me mean. <laughs> because I, honestly, I thought the emptiness inside was caused by some failing in the people around me. So of course, people didn't wanna deal with that. They didn't wanna deal with anger and unreasonableness and blame, and they left. And I tried to change. I was in therapy for years, and eventually I was in therapy multiple times every week. But the more I talked about it, the worse I got. And then more scared, and then more desperate. Now, there was no name back then for what was going on, but there is now. It's complex PTSD from childhood trauma. This is the kind of post-traumatic stress that comes from chronic, ongoing stress. And this can happen at any stage of life, but CPTSD develops most commonly in kids who are abused and neglected. 
So you'll, you'll hear me say childhood PTSD and complex PTSD almost interchangeably, and I always have to apologize. It drives some people crazy. The crucial turning point was when I learned to heal the number one symptom caused by my trauma, and it's another thing there was no word for back then, and that's dysregulation. If you've taken any of my other courses, you've probably heard the story of how I learned the writing and meditation techniques that were shown to me in 1994, and that, to my incredible surprise, calmed my stressed and hurting mind way, way down and brought my thoughts and emotions into order. Now, what a game changer. I became calm and clear, and I could finally see what was going wrong in my life and what was really good about me underneath all the guilt and self-attack that I used to direct at myself back then. Now, maybe you feel anxious around people. Maybe past hurts have made it hard to trust. Maybe the shame and invalidation you're carrying from your childhood make it impossible to just be yourself with other people and you're in fear all the time that you'll say the wrong thing or that they don't like you or that you simply don't belong. You think everyone else belongs but not me. I know that feeling. I spent so much of my life feeling that way, drowning in fear and consumed with resentment, talking about it, trying to get other people to understand how wronged I was, how terrible were the things that happened to me, how unjustly excluded and overlooked I was. And all these things were true at one time, and it felt like talking about it should deliver some kind of healing breakthrough. We all have to talk about painful things sometime, but as you probably found too, it doesn't heal the disconnection. That, I've learned, involves building something you might call connection muscles, emotionally, mentally, and neurologically. Now, rather than trying to run away from people or change them or hate them or cling to them for dear life, I learned to shift my focus onto noticing and calming my triggers. If you don't get triggered, all the other things you do when you're triggered become optional. You can choose to do something different. It's amazing how life opens up to us when we can be at ease with ourselves and confident that whatever happens, we'll know how to deal with it. You don't have to be all better before you start working on connecting. In fact, you need connection to get better right where you are. If that's at the very beginning of your recovery from early trauma, you need it because all the other work that you're going to do to heal, the brain healing, learning your triggers, how they cut you off from people. None of this can be accomplished in isolation. So you were born to be connected and CPTSD can block you from finding any connection and it can block you from experiencing the connections that are right in front of you, but you can heal. Your healing gets a huge boost when you're making happy progress in your ability to connect with other people, whether it's with a spouse or children or friends or family or just strangers you meet on the street. You can learn this in small, brave steps. It's not always easy, but as you work at it, you get better at it. It gets easier to enjoy people and be at ease with them. You get better at choosing who you want in your life and who you don't. So there are a lot of forms of help out there that focus on the cause of trauma, what happened to you, the people who hurt you, and how that affected you. And those aspects of your story, they're important, but this course is mostly focused on present time, what symptoms you're having now, what is happening when you start connecting with other people, and how you can do that better. Now, the change begins when you believe that you can do it. You can heal. Some people who were heavily criticized or bullied when they were small 
create a coping mechanism of suppressing themselves. And the idea is, if you can stay off the radar screen of the person who tyrannizes you, you don't challenge them, don't try hard to accomplish anything, don't attract attention, don't admit mistakes, you'll be safe. And maybe that was true in childhood, but if this goes on into adulthood, it can turn into a really hard pattern of avoidance. Avoidance of connection with people, of accomplishment, of meeting your own material needs, and of pursuing a life that makes you happy. Now, avoidance makes your life small and lonely. It can make it feel like some force outside yourself is making it impossible to change. And believing this can make people not only feel helpless, but sour and angry. Do you know people like this? That defensive anger is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're so sure that they won't be understood or accepted, they kind of lead with criticism and blame. We all have this a little bit. Hiding, you know, criticizing, blaming other people as a way to keep our fears at bay, that we don't belong, that we're not good enough, that no one likes us. And that resentful martyr energy really does push people away. Despite anything else that might be good about you, it can ruin relationships and the possibilities of your life. So it's good to notice it, to take stock from time to time and see if unconsciously you're actually blocking yourself from the life you want. So I've made a list of more than 40 signs that you might be acting out on an old, unhealthy pattern of keeping your life small that's sabotaging you being happy. So let's start with material self-suppression, because that's what I'm calling it, suppressing yourself. Number one, you confuse living simply with actually what self-neglect. Maybe expressing resentment at people who have decent things, you know, an okay house, clean clothes, good healthy food, and imagining that not having these things puts you on a higher moral plane, like you're just not so materialist or something. Number two, your living space is cluttered and dirty. Yeah, <laughs> that is a way to self-suppress. When, when your space isn't clear, you don't have space to invite people, to dream, to have orderly thoughts. Uh, for people with CPTSD, having clutter in your space can increase dysregulation. Number three is you don't exercise, even though we all know what a strong medicine it is for depression, for dysregulation, for anxiety, for your health in general. Not exercising is a way of suppressing yourself because if you did, you would begin to bloom. That's what happens. Number four, you go to bed day after day feeling guilty about what you ate that day. So what that points to is that you have a chronic pattern of eating in a way that you don't want to eat. And you know, a lot of people do this. I do it sometimes, but it's this terrible feeling going to bed at night and thinking only about what I ate and beating myself up over it is definitely making myself small. The best thoughts I can have are clear, free, happy thoughts that empower me to eat the way that I intend to eat the next day. Number five, you're waiting until you're a different weight before you buy decent clothes. <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have like multiple sizes all over the closet and in the drawers? And then you don't have anything nice because any day now you're going to change the way you eat and not feel guilty at night. That whole thing. That is self-suppression. You can go ahead and have decent clothes at the weight you are right now. 
Um, number six, your car is full of litter. If you drive a car and it's full of litter, this is um, kind of like the equivalent of having a messy house. And it communicates to other people that you maybe don't have your, your thoughts in order. And I bet you're avoiding giving people rides places. Free up your life. Clean out your car. Make it decent. Wipe down the dashboard. Number seven, your desk is cluttered. Same thing as the car or the house, but your desk is where you sit down. If, if you're like me, I work at a desk and I intentionally have a desk that's really smaller than I would like it to be because if you give me extra feet at the end of the desk, I'll pile it up with papers. I've always got like a ton of papers and a lot of stuff going on. And every morning I get up, I make my bed and then I tidy up my desk. And I guess I could do it the night before, but I'm too tired at that point. <laughs> I get up in the morning and I tidy my desk and I have these shelves where I put things like, this is something I'm not dealing with today, but I'm dealing with it tomorrow. And I have these really cool like colored plastic pocket folders that I put them in and by project and they're see-through so I can see what they are. So that way I can have, you know, 20 projects going, but not on my desk. Number eight, you don't buy yourself clothes that look good on you. That part of that goes back to what I said about like, you know, feeling like, oh, there's this future weight that you're going to have. You will look a certain way in the future and then you can have the clothes. But actually you deserve to buy clothes that look good on you right now. And I know hardly anybody has money for all the clothes they would ever want. But even if you go to thrift shops, I love thrift shops. You get to pick out the clothes that look good on you. Uh, number nine, <laughs> your bras and underwear are tattered, stained, frayed, falling apart. This is a way that you communicate to yourself that you're not worth it. And again, I know they cost money, but you can go to someplace like Target and it's really not that much to have decent, proper, newish underwear and bras. And what about another form of self-suppression, romantic self-suppression? This is another way that you might be playing small, all right? Um, there's someone in your life who mistreats you and you've said nothing because conflict for you is unbearable. At a certain point in your healing, you're going to need to say something. And yes, the whole thing could fall apart if you're honest. But I always say, if being truthful causes a relationship to fall apart, it was never real in the first place. All right, the next one, you love someone in, in your life, but you don't tell them. Now, I realize that a lot of people watching this channel, it might be limerence. You can't tell them because it will freak them out because you, you either know flat out or you suspect that if they knew how strong your feelings were, they would avoid you. They would, you know, put up a boundary and not want to deal with you. That's possible. But you know what? Even if that happened, mightn't it not be for the best? Now, if that other person has a partner, I would say, don't say anything clear on out. But sometimes expressing how you really feel is a good way to like, let the chips fall where they may. Let your life move forward. Let the story go where it's trying to go. Either the whole thing falls apart because of who you are, or who knows, maybe it's meant to be and you come together. But when you hide how you feel about things, you prevent the story, you get it stuck in mud. And that is an empty mud. Nothing good happens there where you're not honest about where you're coming from. All right, the next one, the person you love doesn't love you back, but you hang out with them. That is a way to play small. That is a way to take all your potential to be in love, to be loved back and take it and just invest it in this, this black hole where nothing comes back out. Okay, here's one. You date someone for years, but you don't commit. Maybe they want you to commit, but you can't. You kind of want to keep it in limbo forever. Now, is limbo really the best for anybody here? 
If the relationship is not good enough to commit, maybe is it right to let it go and open up your life to something new that is really fabulous that you really do want something to ask yourself. All right. Another one, you have a partner who loves you, but you're not faithful to them. You've got something going on in secret. You can't be straight with them about how you really feel. You're tying up all their emotional energy so that you can, I don't know, have a safe haven to go to. That keeps your life small. No good thing comes to people who are dishonest like that. All right. Similarly, you're in a relationship you know can't last, but you don't leave. Another way to tie up all your emotional energy and make sure nothing wonderful happens. And finally, on the relationship front, this is a way to keep your life small. You really want a relationship, but you don't do anything about it, right? This is really common for people with CPTSD, like trying to meet somebody, putting yourself out there is very triggering, creates the possibility that you'll get rejected, that you'll feel terrible, that you'll go through abandonment melange. Abandonment melange is a very painful emotional state that can happen to people who were abandoned as kids. That's this very intense combination of grief and anxiety and rage. And it comes down upon you and feels like your life is over because somebody doesn't like you. But when you have a name for that phenomenon, you can handle that phenomenon. It's abandonment melange. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a emotional wave that comes over people who have that history of abandonment, but guess what? Then it passes right on by when you know what it is. You can afford to put yourself out there. You can afford to express that you like somebody and they don't like you back. But to do that, it's really important to be able to strengthen your ability to handle big emotions. I'm going to talk about that at the end. All right, here's another one. You wish you had friends, but you say publicly that people are terrible these days and you insist they're not worth the trouble. I see, a, I see so much of this in the, in the YouTube comments. And I think a lot of these, I'm actually responding to things I, I see in the YouTube comments, a lot of pessimism, you know, just pessimism about people. People suck, men suck, women suck. All women want is money. All men want is sex. All this, this is trauma-driven thinking. And if I just encourage you, do not commit to these thoughts, have an open mind. Obviously there are great people out there and obviously love does occur. If you want to have friends, if you hope to ever meet a partner, then the cynicism needs to be addressed and healed. It needs to get out of the way so that you can have an open enough mind to go out there and have some adventures, take some risks. All right, here's one. You never have people over. Maybe you go to their house sometimes, but you never have people over. That's a sign you're playing small. Um, one is you complain and gossip about a friend, but you don't talk to the friend about what's bothering you. So that's a way that you vent without actually solving the rift in the relationship that's keeping you not only like disconnected from them, but causing harm to their reputation. All right. You know, it's your friend's birthday but you don't send a note. And here's the thing about Facebook is um, if you're on Facebook, you can know people's birthdays and it'll come up every day that it's happening. And I sometimes talk about this man, uh, my friend, when I was growing up, she died when we were 26 and I stayed friends with her mother and her mother, one of her big regrets is that she stayed with my friend's father for so many years. And after he died, when she was 80, she got together with a longtime friend who was also widowed and they had the most wonderful romance of their lives. And the guy, his name was Dick 
And he said, he what he did was he kept a Rolodex, because that's what people their age do, <laughs> is keep a Rolodex. And he kept track of everybody's birthday. He kept track of the big events, like if they had been in the hospital or they had a child or maybe um, a loved one died. And he kept track of all that. And every day he'd go on his date, his date Rolodex and he'd see who do I need to reach out to. And he'd call them or send an email or a card. What a lovely guy. And you know what? He had oodles of friends. He had a lot of joy, a big warm heart. And really, no matter what you've been through, you can be like him. So my friend who married him as her second marriage, she said that her 80s were absolutely the happiest decade of her life. And she only wishes that she had found him before. And she, it really opened her heart to be around somebody who was so loving to people in general. He was a nice guy. I got to meet him too. Okay, here's one. You're walking down the street. There's not a lot of people around. You pass somebody and you look down. Do you do that? That is a small thing to do. It is so much more joyful and it makes life better for you and for the person you pass to just say hello, give them a little nod. You don't have to get into a big conversation about it because I know that's what you're worried about. Um, the next one, before you leave your house, you look around out the window to make sure that no neighbors around, because also you don't want to talk to them. And I know, I know, uh, I have some neighbors who are very, very talkative. And the minute you, you know, let them in, you give them an inch and just say, hey, how's it going? Oh yeah, it was raining. <laughs> you know, this whole conversation erupts. So this is about having boundaries. If you don't want to have a deep conversation when you say hello to people, you practice your exit lines. You go, I'm so glad to see you. I have to go right now but take care. See you next time. And you say that and you make your exit. And now it's safe for you to say hello to the neighbors. You, you might be making a tremendous difference in their lives just by connecting with them. And I know it's good for you. All right, here's one. You have people you love, but you don't call them, right? Same sort of principle. Or when your phone rings and it's someone you know, you don't answer. Ah, it would be a big conversation. I can't deal with it. If you have boundaries, you can call your friends and you can pick up the phone when they call. Here's one. When a dog comes over and wags its tail, pet the dog. <laughs> Don't ignore it. Ignoring the dog, ignoring love when it just shows up like a little loving creature shows up in your path. Take the love. Just give them a little pat on the head and say hello. Okay, here's another category of self-suppression. You don't participate when participation is called for. For example, right, when you join a group, it gets uncomfortable for you. And not only do you leave, but then you tell everybody how crappy the group is and criticize them. Have you done that? Like burning your bridges on those people. If you really don't feel right in a group or in a friendship, it's okay to leave. It's okay to set boundaries and go. But whenever possible, don't burn your bridges. Don't, don't talk bad about those people. I mean, basically, don't talk bad about anyone. It's just not a good idea. It's not necessary. You know that old rule, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Before you say something about people. All right. When you go to a potluck dinner, you bring something cheap or you bring nothing, right? And then you don't lend a hand with cleanup. That's a way that you don't participate. Talk about not participating. As a person who hosts a lot of potlucks, um, I, I know exactly who it is who brings like a protein, who brings a salad, and who brings a six pack of cheap soda and dumps it on the table. You know, <laughs> I don't mind. I tell everybody, you don't have to bring anything, but I love the people who participate and the people who, you know, bring something that's nice to eat and the people who help me clean up will always get invited back again. 
Um, all right, here's another one. You go to 12-step meetings, but you don't work the steps. A lot of people do that. 12-step meetings, any particular meeting you go to is really only as good as the proportion of people who have some recovery there, and recovery comes through working the steps. And um, you know, this is just a little talk about 12-step life, um, and I know you're watching this, it might not be your thing, but it applies to a lot of situations you go to. I've been to meetings where almost nobody was working the program. They were just going there talking about how terrible everything is in their life. And you know what? It's depressing. It's depressing. There's room for new people to talk about what's bothering them when there's a lot of other people who are talking about the solution. So if you're trying to recover, but all you're doing is going in and saying how terrible everything is, I have news for you. Saying how terrible everything is, is not really going to solve anything. We all have to like recognize it at some point that maybe things aren't going well and maybe you tell somebody because you're asking for help, like in a group or to a therapist or a friend or a sponsor. But talking about your problems and how unhappy you are at a certain point makes you more unhappy. And not only that, it brings down other people. And you would be wise if you do wanna feel happier Go to where people are talking about their solutions, how they made things better. Listen to them, match them. Start using your time, for example, in a 12-step meeting when it's your turn to share. Say what the problem is, but then talk about the tools you use to make it better. Talk about the solution. There's people in the room who need to hear it. Even people who have been there longer than you, they need to hear that. They need to hear, what do I do? But what do I do? But what, what helps? Talk about what helps. I know you know you've done things that help. And every day, if you're working on healing, and this is true also like in my membership program, if people are working my program of healing, they're going to have little victories. And those little victories are medicine for everybody in the community. You can do that in the comments in YouTube too. Share your successes. All right, there's this other form of self-suppression around accomplishment. And, you know, you might think it keeps you safe from criticism and rejection, but it doesn't work. So here's how you can tell if you're, you know, suppressing yourself around accomplishment. You have stories that you tell to prove to other people how unfair life is, that you tried, but the world wouldn't let you succeed. And I'm telling you this because this is a huge go-to that I used to have. I just would feel really discouraged. It was um, building up because I, I have a daily practice technique now that I use to get my fearful and resentful thoughts out. And there's a lot of times in my life where I felt like the, you know, the deck was stacked against me. My boss, um, my former partners, uh, friends, I felt like they wanted me to fail. They were undermining me. They were um, trying to make things harder for me. And I would talk about it to a lot of people. And then, you know, I would come to my senses and go, what have I done? Now I've made everybody like hate this person or <laughs> I'm looking like somebody who, who's got these terrible problems and I'm, I'm actually not going to do anything about them because actually what was going on is I was having a lot of fear and resentment. I haven't actually made a decision to leave. But what I teach when I'm teaching people how to recover from trauma is to take back their sovereignty. That means not only do other people dictate how you heal or what you need, but it means you've got to take responsibility if something's really terrible for you, that it's, that it's for you to change, that other people, like, there is no, like, knight in shining armor who's going to come along and, like, save you from your job or save you from your terrible group of friends, that if it's really so bad, instead of talking to people about it or complaining, it's time to make a change. And I know change is hard. I know. All right, here's another one. You hate your job and you want to be promoted, but you can't because you don't have the skills 
and yet you don't go learn the skills. This is really, really common. Um, it surprised me. I didn't learn this till I was in my 40s. <laughs> How much mobility was there for me if I would actually do that. I used to really externalize responsibility for me getting anywhere at work and I was always very unhappy about it. And I would say that I was, I tended to be underemployed and underutilized. I, I think I had a lot of potential when I was younger, but because of the drama from the, you know, problems in my life and the trauma and then my own, my own self-suppression, instead of like asking for a raise, I would just be resentful for two years that I didn't get one, you know? And there's a lot of power in asking for a raise. If they don't give you one, you can still stay and you've lost nothing, or you can take that as information and you can go do something else. And I know there's going to be a ton of people in the comments going, ah, oh, blah, blah, capitalism. And you know what? That's just more self-suppression. Like it, you really are literally not in a position to change the economic system where you live. You are in a position to change to change your actions, to move yourself somewhere where you might better like to be. And I thought that I couldn't raise my income for years. I, I really felt suppressed by this. And then I had a kid and the kid's dad left me and, and I had to raise my income. And so many single parents have been in this situation. And I, I had to think real quick about how I was going to do that. And it turned out that once it was absolutely necessary, I did what was necessary. I made huge changes in my life and I, I, I learned some skills. I changed my appearance. I started showing up on time. I started showing up with an attitude that would help me earn more money. And it was, you know, I, I just laid it on the line and then I asked for the raise. My boss complained, but I got the raise. You know, that's what happened. So I, I just am urging you, don't predict that the world is unfair. That's what I'm talking about, that sort of projection. Like, I never get what I want. It's always unfair. A lot of things are unfair. You haven't gotten a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't just take the logical action to move toward what you want. And that's what this video is about, is about ways you block yourself from getting what you want. Cynicism, pessimism, giving up, blaming other people, all that stuff. Like, we all do it a little bit, but at a certain point, it's important to shift gears and figure out like, what can I change here? Because it's not going to change unless I change it. One thing that I can guarantee is going to hobble your ability to make a positive change in your life is if you're looking at screens during every free hour, looking at your phone, looking at your computer, looking at streaming, whatever it is, games, the time doing that is time taken away from your potential to make a positive shift in your life. Screens are nice for relaxation. They're necessary for work for a lot of us, but they should not fill up all your hours. Personal development. Okay, personal development could be happening on screens. You're on a screen right now to watch this video. It's important to use your time well to move your life forward into how you want it to change. All right, um, here's one. The knowledge you need is available for free online, but you don't spend time to learn it. So many of you have heard the story, but when the, in 2008, 2009, when the market crashed and I was a consultant at the time and everybody who used to hire me got laid off their jobs and therefore I didn't have a job. <laughs> I trained myself how to make video and I had learned it long ago before it was digital. I didn't really know how to edit video in the digital world. And so I Googled it. I Googled it. I started a video company and I taught myself to edit and I hired somebody to do the camera work. And together we cobbled together a little company that ended up grow growing into many people that flourished until 
uh, Crappy Childhood Fairy took off and I let that business go and handed it off to one of my colleagues and now I do this. But my, my experience editing video has always been such a feather in my cap. I have, you know, you'll never be sorry you know how to edit a video, especially if you do what I do. All right, here's one. You live buried in debt and because of the debt, you can't make changes. So a friend of mine said this to me in my 20s and said, I think I know why people go into debt. They do it so that they, you know, they don't have any choices. And I thought that's preposterous. You know, it's, I was in debt at the time. I was in debt because I couldn't pay it off. But the thing is, back in my day, they didn't give you a credit card the minute you were born. I think I was like 29 or something when I finally got a credit card and I lived all that time. I had some student debt, I paid it off. I got this credit card with a $400 limit and then it was always at a $400 limit. Like I made this mental adjustment. And so always in my mind, it's like, well, I'd really like to take this trip, but I can't till I pay off my credit card. And it's kind of like what I said about clothes. I'd really like to have decent clothes, but I can't until I lose 20 pounds. It's the same thing. It's like putting into the future. It's taking yourself and distancing yourself from the future. So either, you know, whether it's clothes or debt, either you accept things the way they are and go ahead and be happy anyway, or you solve the problem so that you can follow through on this plan you have to pay off the debt and then take the trip. But holding that debt right there, it's always like this little bookmark or a doorstop. You know, you just can't, you can't open the door. You can't go where you're trying to go. All right, here's one. You don't get medical checkups and you don't get your teeth cleaned regularly. That's a big one. I'm always trying to encourage people with CPTSD that that's a concrete form of self-neglect that can cause real problems. And um, then I want to talk about this last category, and I was trying to think of what to call it, but let's call it suppression of joy and growth. Um, so here's one that I relate to, and it's your living space has nothing beautiful. There's, not, there's no art, or you have a yard or a porch or a balcony, but you don't have any plants on it. All right, having a beautiful space is a way that you commit to your life, that you commit to having the life that you love. Now, if you really don't care about art or flowers or anything like that, okay, fine. I bet you have your equivalent thing about making your space nice and treating yourself like a proper adult who has proper things, proper furniture, proper silverware, <laughs> proper bras and underwear, right? <laughs> but to allow yourself to really blossom as a person who has what you need, all right? Here's one. You'd like to have a pet, but you don't get a pet. And I think I'm throwing that in because I really want a dog. And I'm not getting a dog right now because I travel so much to do live shows. And I haven't figured that out yet, but I really want a pet. And um, I think that having a dog again in my life is gonna be a really happy thing. And I'm having to like delay happiness on that, but it's worth it because I get to travel and see you. <laughs> Here's one, you feel vaguely resentful around people who are happy or accomplished. Now, this is something we talked about in a video not that long ago. What is it about people who aren't screwed up or traumatized that makes us so uncomfortable around them? And as one person pointed out, and I think this is right, it's shame, right? Shame comes up around people who are okay. And we begin to compare ourselves to them, even though they're probably not comparing themselves to us. We're doing it for them and then pulling away from them. So we end up with like envy, resentment, avoidance around people who have fun um, opportunities, you know, joy to bring into our lives, great people. And that's one of my regrets is some of the wonderful people I've crossed paths with 
who I allowed that friendship to just slip away because I just, I don't know, I felt resentful or envious of how successful they were or how beautiful or how kind. So do you recognize any of these forms of self-suppression in yourself? The solution is to begin expressing who you are. And I understand quite well how that can be tricky when you grow up with abuse and neglect because you might have a prickly side, you might have a difficult side, you might have a little bit of issue with emotional dysregulation where you lash out when stuff gets stressful, people trigger you. So when people say, hey, just be your true self, I know, I know as few others can understand, you know, how risky it is to just be yourself. So it's a becoming yourself is a two-part thing. It's not just letting your true personality and thoughts hang out. It's not just that. Your true self also has all kinds of values, um, consideration, restraint at times, um, thoughtfulness, strategic behavior. Like that's part of you too. And they need to come up together where you think to yourself, do I need to mouth off to this other driver right now? Is that necessary to be my real self? Or is my real self also somebody who can be patient about somebody who cut me off in traffic, who can hold my tongue, who can go use my tools to go release that stress before it gets all stuck inside me and turns me into an angry serrated knife, as my meditation teacher used to call me, a serrated knife. So I don't want to be that person. My real self is not that. That layer, that angry layer was a byproduct of my trauma and I'm healing that and you can too. So the solution isn't just running around screaming at people about whatever we feel or things like that. The solution is self-awareness, right? The solution is self-expression, balanced, self-awareness, self-expression. So people with CPTSD, when you ask what they really want in life, quite often they can't tell you. The question brings up grief and anxiety, like, I don't know, I'll never get it anyway. But it's good to know what you want. It's good to write it down. And discovering that can be a process. A lot of people who come into my programs, I go write down your wildest dreams of what you really want. And a lot of people will whisper to each other, is it just me? I, like, I can't, I can't even articulate it. Give it a little time. <laughs> Start writing down what you know about it. Let it be vague at first. You express yourself with who you are, how you present yourself, what you say, and what you become in life. And that's what healing looks like. And as you heal, you do that a little bit. And I trust me, you're going to just get all left up in your head. Like, why did I say that? I shouldn't have. I just blurted out something. And now everybody thinks I'm an idiot. This is part of healing. This is part of it. So gradual, incremental experimentation, it always involves some fumbling, all right? It always involves some failure. And if you've lived your life in fear of criticism, because that's how it all started for you, you're gonna need support. You're gonna need perseverance to just keep going one foot in front of the other, becoming your real self, expressing yourself. So this is what you would have been doing as a child if you ha would have been free to be yourself and supported to learn how to be yourself. Now, maybe there's a little developmental delay there, but now is your time. You're going to need tools. You're going to need like, you know, books, videos, courses to guide you. You're using a tool right now watching this video. So that's great. You'll need support from actual people, maybe friends you already know or friends that you meet because they're in little pockets where people work on themselves, maybe in a 12-step fellowship or a support group, um, maybe in my membership program. If you're already in that or you're interested in it, check it out. If you're a self-suppressor, it's like I'm telling you something horrible. You're going to have to deal with people. <laughs> That's impossible, you're thinking. But it's actually quite nice if you can go slowly. 
and it's necessary because if you're left to your own device, honestly, you're very likely to fall back into self-suppression, justifying that suppression and playing small. So if you want a really gentle way to get started, to try to handle the feelings that come up when you expand your comfort zone like that, you can try my daily practice techniques. That's why I'm always talking about them. They really help with that. It's kind of like opening a window on a room that's gotten stuffy and steamy and with cruddy thoughts and feelings. It lets fresh air in. It lets the bad stuff out. And sometimes it makes a space for a happy thought to come in that leads you to your next step. You have a little, an idea, you know, an inspiration. I know, I know what I can do next. If you go look at the comments under my videos on YouTube, you'll see basically two kinds of comments. And one is the kind that comes from people who are totally stuck in their early trauma. I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and I teach people about the adult symptoms of childhood PTSD and how to start recovering so you can get back on the path toward a happy and connected life. And I emphasize connection because I believe that at its heart, childhood PTSD is an injury to the ability to connect. That Injury to connection is the starting point of a whole world of problems that so many of us experienced as a consequence of abuse and neglect in childhood. So to recover from that, I teach people a new way to focus their healing, to shift the focus off the past and off of other people and onto their own symptoms. Because that, right here in the symptoms we have, that is where healing is possible. And even though my message about this is like, I say it so many times, it's like a drumbeat. I still get a lot of comments and emails from people who are on a different path. And some of them are really stuck in a lot of pain. Now, in case you're in that group and you just haven't come to one of my courses yet or my coaching or one of my Zoom calls, I wanna tell you how to get out of that stuck group and into the other group, the group that's not stuck, they're healing, they're moving forward, they're changing their lives. And I'm gonna describe how they're doing it. Now, I'm not a doctor or therapist. I'm just someone who recovered from my own childhood PTSD. And I've learned from both my own experience and from working with thousands of people who went through neglect and abuse in their childhood. And because I've watched some people have amazing breakthroughs that changed their lives, and I've witnessed other people stay miserable and stuck and disconnected, I've come up with a couple of observations. Now, if you're miserable and not progressing the way you want to, the way you, you need to progress, I want you to stay with me here just through the end of the video so you can see what I'm seeing as I hear from all of you who engage with my content about the patterns that are working and the patterns that are really just making people who want to move forward feel miserable. So... Okay, two basic self-concepts that I'm observing. The first is what I notice in people who are working really hard to figure out the problem caused by their experiences and to find the solutions that seem to help them get better. Now, not everything they've tried may have been helpful, but they're active in this project and noticing where they got lifted up and where it didn't really work, where they fell short. And in the comments, you'll, you'll, if you read them, they're sharing these nuggets of their own wisdom. They'll say, I tried X, Y, and Z, and X really sucked, and Y was amazing. And there are clear signs in them, signs that I normally recognize that someone is actually healing. They will say that they're getting along better with people. They feel more at ease uh, in groups or when they're alone. 
and this is kind of an advanced stage of healing, their talents and their gifts will start emerging and filling up their lives with a sense of purpose and actions that are helpful to other people. Now for this first group, they're subscribing to my channel because, and this is what they tell me, it's practical, it's solution oriented, it's based on not just theory, but real experience about healing that they relate to. They're feeling not alone anymore. And for people who are having a breakthrough in their healing like this, it feels exciting to try out new tools and ideas and see if there's something in there they can use. They want inspiration, they want action steps, they're ready to go. Now you can tell I like that group, right? But I also love the second group. And these are the folks where the breakthrough simply hasn't happened yet. They're good people, they've worked hard on their healing, and a lot of them are knowledgeable about the treatments out there, and they've tried a lot of them, but the healing has not come. And so this group can be very, very discouraged, and they've come to feel helpless and hopeless. And you can see it in the comments they write, that deep down inside, they've stopped believing that healing is possible for them. That right there. And where that leaves a person, and you see it, it reflected in their comments, is in bitterness. So people who are going through this will have a lot to say about things outside themselves, family members, parents, siblings, exes, the people who said they would help them but couldn't or wouldn't, um, the hospitals or therapists or institutions that made them feel unimportant and unseen. And people in this state of discouragement can tell you very clearly what's wrong with all the other people, what ought to change. And, and, and they can tell you what their pain is like. That's common. That's okay. But this second group, the discouraged and stuck group, what's also clear is that they have a very vague or non-existent concept of themselves, of what they'd be like without the emotional pain. The pain becomes everything, as if it's who they are. And so they can't see themselves in a different future state where things have changed for the better. They can't even imagine it and what that might be like, what day-to-day -day life would feel like if they weren't trapped inside their own symptoms. So that's what I mean by stuck. Now, getting stuck in pain and isolation is a very traumatized thing to do. And it happens to everybody sometimes. But if you want to break out of that, You've got to, and you might recognize this phrase from another context, but you've got to break the wheel. And what I mean by wheel is the churning, negative thinking and emotion states that go round and round within us. The blame, the obsession with people who hurt you, the withdrawal from life, the struggling, the failure, the ways you never felt accepted or seen, and the stories that we end up telling ourselves over and over about why we are the way we are. And it's not that these stories aren't true, but if we can't stop the spinning on those stories, the wheel just gets stronger. And the wheel is simultaneously like a vacuum that sucks everything into it, and it's like a centrifuge. It pushes everything off. So it spins and it throws off and scatters everything that you care about, people who love you, wonderful opportunities in your life to have fun or, or have financial security, have joy and humor. It just cool, you know, it just goes away. And as devastating as it is, the wheel is also very seductive because it looks like it's going to make you feel better. And that's why I use this metaphor that you can't just slow down the wheel. You can't just ask it a lot of questions why it is the way it is or analyze it or look at the trajectory of everything it throws off. You just have to shove a big stick into that wheel and break it. And if that's a violent image, don't worry. What you can picture is that the wheel's made of air because it is, it's not even real. 
And when you break the whole thing, it evaporates like a cloud. It's gone. You thought the wheel was going to make you feel better, but did it? You thought the wheel had ruined your life, but has it? Has it done that already? You thought that the wheel would protect you from triggers of other people, but it doesn't. It actually just kept you stuck in pain and made you see nothing but helplessness. But you know what? You're not helpless. There's a whole wide world of experiences out there. If you can get just a little breathing room just to get started from that cycle of fear and anger and analysis and diagnosis and blame and more fear, right? Thinking and talking about this stuff doesn't make it go away. It goes away. And remember, all you need is just a little breathing room. It goes away when just for a moment you can release the story and open yourself up to a new and fresh experience of yourself and your capabilities because you are capable. You're capable in present time of changing these things. Now the focus needs to come off of time past and off of other people and onto the only thing you can heal, which is yourself and the knowledge that right here, right now, through practical steps, you open the door to that healing process by changing your mental state. Now I know that's hard, but I can teach you how to do it. You are not helpless. This is hopeful. For there to be hope, you need to just have a vision, an ideal, and you need to have a belief that healing is actually possible for you inside your own healing. Where, whether or not other people change or circumstances change, this is the crucial sign that someone is on a good path. They recognize their own agency and they begin to see choices. Even when CPTSD puts nothing but horrible choices in front of you, you have a choice. And despite the symptoms you have today, you can move one foot in front of the other toward the healed life that you need, that you deserve. And it starts in the way you regard the possibility of your own healing. Because if you're telling yourself that you're totally damaged, that you're hopelessly screwed up, then whether you mean to or not, you're disconnecting with your life and all the people in it. People generally have a lot of compassion, but when they sense that negative wheel spinning, it's like a hum you can feel in other people, right? And what do you do? You pull away. And the very thing that you're longing for, which is for them to come toward you, to help you, to be connected with you, it can happen. And you're like, why can I not get some support? Why doesn't anyone believe in me? Can't they see I need some help? And yeah, it's a harsh place to be. So how do you even begin? If you can just do one thing today, I'll keep it really simple for you. Just get it into your mind, what it will feel like when your PTSD reactions to life are reduced. You want to give it a little try? Okay, let's take a minute and walk you through it. Imagine that you're in a stressful situation that's normally triggering for you. A party, um, being at work, getting your feelings hurt by somebody you care about. Now remember what it's like when you start getting dysregulated and reactive to the situation, okay? We're just going to dwell on that very briefly. Don't go way into it, but just, just try to remember what that's like. You might feel tight, your heart races, you, you want to lash out, maybe you want to go silent, you want to get numb, and you get scared that that same old part of you that screws things up and always comes out when you're triggered is going to happen again. Okay, that's all you have to do. Let that go. Now, in comparison, imagine you're in that situation, but your PTSD symptoms are 50% less, all right? You feel a little rise when you're triggered, 
but it doesn't go over the top. You don't lose control. You still have choices about what you say, what your facial expression is. You can decide to stay in the situation or not stay. You have that flexibility. So would that kind of reduction in your symptoms change how that all turned out for you? Would that make a difference in your life if you could do that long-term whenever stressful situations came up? Would, would being strong in this way allow you to change some of your circumstances, um, relationships, career, physical health, your ability to share your gifts with the world? Things you couldn't even imagine before because you've been working so hard just to try to see how you get from where you are to just a little bit ahead. But now there's something way more possible out there for you. And if you can just let that in a minute, what you've just done is you've joined the ranks of the first group I described, the ones who can see a better future and who are more likely than anyone else to actually get there. So see if you can let that in today. You can just kind of sit with it or you can take action steps on it. You can click on the links to my courses if you want to. They're always below my videos in the description section. And if you're only ready for one small step though, try this. Just stop telling yourself the terrible story of your life. You break the wheel when you can believe and connect with a better vision of yourself. And then when you start taking action on it, even if it's small action, it leads to change. You can do this. I've seen many, many people with really difficult pasts begin with small steps in that positive direction, and then it gains momentum and it gains momentum and soon real substantial life changes are carrying them off into the future. And this can happen for you. You can change. Growing up abused and neglected has an almost universal effect of draining people of their innate power. You lose the sense that you are good or that you have agency to make anything good happen. And it takes a lot of will, a lot of resilience and some luck to remember who you are and to stay connected to your natural sense of what is good, to know that you are good and it's worth working on yourself and worth trying to become more than you are right now. So what do I mean? Kinder, for example, more healed closer to people, more connected, more structured in your life, more patient, more capable, more creative, more financially secure so you have choices and a little bit of mobility. Everyone wants these things, but when you've been traumatized, it has a way of disempowering your ability to accomplish them. The dysfunctional families where so many of us grew up may not have intended to blot out the good in you, but here's how that happens, okay? I wanna outline five ways that growing up traumatized can disempower you, and then I'll talk about how to heal. Okay, so here's how it begins. Parents' behaviors, if not their actual put-downs of you, imprint you with a limited or negative vision of your future self. Your potential, your talent is neglected. It's undeveloped, it goes dormant. No one is there to guide you and push you along. You're left to your own devices to learn self-determination and persistence and follow through. You can see why that's so hard, right? All right, the second way that dysfunctional families can leave you disempowered. Trouble at home isolated you and alienates you from other people. You hide. You learn not to stand up for yourself. You learn to check out, to give up, and put, put up or shut up. You know, you may have even been told that. 
you learn to resent. And this guarantees that you're going to be alienated from non-traumatized people who are, you know, more or less happy and functional, who could have modeled realistic goals and healthy relationships for you. They could have offered opportunities for education and career. And maybe you got some of that in your life, but what you learned at home may have undermined that. Having no positive connections with people who are engaged with their potential in a positive way, it's not just about class and money, it's also very much about being around people who are hopeful and confident and who keep their heads together and who have social grace and who earn a living. And this is like medicine to a traumatized and demoralized kid. I know it was for me. Did you have these people in your life? Did you have it at home? When you met people like that, were you able to feel comfortable with yourself around them or did you have to avoid them because they were so triggering for you? Number three in the ways that dysfunctional families can leave you disempowered is now that you're alienated from the people who are like hopeful and have goodwill and, you know, to try for things, what's left are all the other people, the people who are troubled, just like your family, who feel cynical and stuck and who, who are very prone to discourage you if you were to step up and shine a little bit. That's a phenomenon that happens with people who are hurting because it threatens them, you know, that they would have to face that they also are meant for more in their lives. And that's painful when you can't do it, when you feel like you failed, like there's nothing you can do. So when you're standing in front of, of a troubled person like that, shining like a bright light, proving that shining is possible. Well, a healthy person feels happy for you and happy to be around you, but a disempowered person compares themselves to you and feels bad about themselves. And all they can think to do is blame you for the way they feel bad. And so they pressure you to feel bad too. They, there's a lot of peer pressure, you know, not to raise your hand in class, not to show off, not to brag. And this happens to everyone who takes a step up. It's as if there's a nefarious force. That's what I call it. When you move up, it comes and tries to pull you back down. And it might be coming from other people, or sometimes it just comes from within. And at first it feels like something good, like, like, oh, thank goodness, I can just relax and quit trying so hard to fit in because it's hard to stand strong and it's easy to give in. It's easy to just give up and let go and be resentful. But if you do, that only increases the instability and the drama and the loss and the isolation that you were trying to leave behind. And you start thinking, well, what's the point? People suck, I suck. What was I even thinking trying to heal my trauma and become something more than I am right now? But of course you have that thought, that's a good, healthy thought that's still there in you, ready to shine. Number four, that the rough family past can leave you disempowered is you're vulnerable. When you doubt yourself and you're lonely, it becomes a lot more likely that you'll attach to a partner who is negative for you, who tears you down. You meet them and oh, they just, they feel like home. It feels like love at first sight, but you know why that is, because it, it is like home. <laughs> it's like your family of origin. At least you think though, there'll be someone to hang out with. And you know, just about everything that I've ever done that I regret, I did out of loneliness. So sometimes that temptation just to grab onto a relationship because it's there, it's strong, it's compelling. But when that kind of relationship continues, your unmet emotional needs, which is what all of us from dysfunctional families have, it will drive you to bond too quickly with someone you already know 
is not good for you. And you end up talking yourself into it. Ah, eh, you know, what's the harm? I could do this for a while. We've all done it before. But then in comes more problems that limit your positive vision of your life. Your confidence takes another hit and your social circle gets smaller and smaller. And it's one thing to go through this with your family of origin, but when your partner is someone who brings you down, that's how we pass it on to the next generation, okay? That's now generational trauma. A bad family situation, no support, and a repetition of the bad family dynamic with a partner. So at that point, this is the fifth way that the hard background can disempower you, your life choices become survival-based quick fix jobs, temporary places to live, short-lived relationships. Have you been through this? I have. I've been through it many times. I was exhausted. I was overwhelmed. My mind was scattered. I was depressed and I was afraid. And I wasn't very in touch with myself. The problems were too big. But sometimes I'd lay awake at night with like this gnawing feeling inside that you know, I've put together a life, but this isn't right. There, there's supposed to be more. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I was meant for something better, for more. And I was, and you are too. So how can you overcome the damage to who you really are that made you feel and believe yourself to be less than so that you can become all that you're meant to be? All right, this is my experience. Somewhere inside, we all have a sense of this fulfilled version of ourselves, the ideal version who is safe and happy and accomplished and loved and loving. And even if you don't know how to become that person yet, the fact that you yearn for it means that in your mind, the ideal is part of you. Do you have that? The ideal. And I used to have a vague sense that I was, you know, screwing up somehow, that I was meant to do more with my life than I was able to manage at that time. I felt stuck. It felt so far away. And this went on for years, like 20 years. And off and on, things got hard in my life. If you've taken my courses, you've heard my story. I was a single mom. I was broke. I was drowning in CPTSD symptoms, but I didn't know what they were. And my hopelessness was kind of getting worse and worse, and I couldn't keep up with it. But even then, that sense that I was meant for something better, something more, it wouldn't leave me alone. And I was always yearning for it as if it was just kind of right there, a little out of reach. I couldn't quite see it, but it was there kind of, you know, just like a feeling, a thought. Even when I was falling short by, you know, yelling at people, ruining friendships and opportunities, getting mixed up with terrible relationships, abandoning myself, but I still knew, I still knew there was more for me. And I'm hoping you know the feeling I'm talking about. I'm hoping it's there for you, even if it's like the tiniest little light in there, you carry it in you. It's there in each person and it's trying to tell you something. Even when everything's hard and you're totally lost, it's like a faint little light showing you the right direction to go, where things can get better. Let's take a small thing. You snapped at someone today and then maybe you beat yourself up a little bit about how you acted, you know, feeling ashamed. It feels bad. But that fact that it bothers you is also something sacred about you because what it signifies is that you have an innate sense of what kindness is. You recognize the other person's feelings and their dignity and their worthiness, even if they were, you know, snappy with you right back. Part of you sees it. 
we all want to be recognized in this way, you know, as dignified and worthy. And when you're too overwhelmed to recognize it in other people, you feel that pang of shame. And that is the best in you reminding you who you really are, even when the worst in you is coming out. That ideal is here and it makes it uncomfortable for you to fall short of what you know you're meant for, who you really are. In this case, kind. That ideal is in there and it makes it uncomfortable for you to fall short of what you know you're meant for, what you know is right. In this case, to be kind, to use care with people. Now, this fact is a beautiful imprint on the human spirit and it is in you. You may be struggling right now, but it's panging you, right? Bang, bang. It's showing you the way forward, who you can become. In fact, it's, it's who you already are. Who you are can't be destroyed, but when you grow up in a dysfunctional family, especially with abuse and neglect, you can lose access to that. You were born with a great deal of power, but what we see so often in traumatized people is disempowerment, like a blank imagination, a turning away from what is good, even when it's right in front of you. The power just drains out of you, and there's a catastrophic loss of potential when this happens, for the time being because you can heal. You can get your power back. You can become re-empowered by healing your trauma symptoms and changing your life. Now, you hear that word empowered, and the word kind of bugs me because mostly it's used by people with a savior complex, saying they empowered someone else to become the way they thought they needed to be. But really, you empower yourself. People can take certain aspects of your power, they can take your material goods, they can take your freedoms, and I know that has happened to many, many of you. It happened to me. But healing means that in whatever outer circumstances you find yourself, you have access to your innate power from within, your power of discernment, your power of imagination, your power to recognize truth and change your mind and create a life. Your innate power comes from inside. It comes from freeing yourself, or mostly freeing yourself, of trauma-driven thinking. And the trauma-driven beliefs and emotions that flit through your mind and heart all day that are echoes of the bad thing that happened in the past, you free yourself. Fear, I'm no good. Fear, nobody likes me. Fear, I can't focus. Fear, I don't work hard enough. And fear, I, I, can't, I work too much. And fear, it's too late. And fear, everybody has love but me. And these are the thoughts that, that I put down on paper twice a day, that kind of thing. I put it on paper twice a day and I ask for them to be removed. You can ask like I do, or you can release them. If you want to learn my techniques for how to exactly do this technique, I can show you. It's a free course. It's called The Daily Practice. You've probably heard me talk about it. It's always linked down in the description section and on my website. And it's easy to get to, and many, many people take it and, and enjoy it. Your trauma-driven thinking... That, that this daily practice is helping with, it is what glues you to the disempowered version of yourself. It has to go. You make a little progress and then you fall back sometimes. But if the terrible things that were said and done to you are dominant in your life, like you keep thinking about them and talking about them and they define who you are at this point, that's gonna keep you disempowered. What happened to you is real and it hurt you, but it does not define you. So when you begin to name the trauma-driven thoughts and decisions and behaviors, and especially the fears that you're carrying around and the resentments, something new can enter into your mind. 
awareness of who you really are, that more that you have always sensed was possible, but you were afraid to hope for it or try for it. Trauma-driven thinking tricks you into thinking you have no choice, and it scares you into thinking that you can't leave terrible situations. When you have less fear and less resentment, that trauma-driven thinking clears away like a fog, right? And what appears are choices. You don't have to stay in some terrible job. You don't have to stay isolated forever. You don't have to keep putting up with abusive treatment. You may not know exactly what the alternative is or how to get there yet, but when your real self is alive and empowered, knowing that you deserve better, then that first step out of the problem becomes easier. And from there, the next step appears to you. And then the next one. And this is how healing works. One clumsy little step in the general direction of that little light, just healing a little at a time. With healing, you can see your next steps, your choices appear on the horizon, and that well of innate power can fill up in you to act on those choices. It's one thing to see them, another to act. You need both. You need power to do both. Change happens with a series of small steps that you can take with a spirit of experimentation. That's a good way to do it. You think, I'm not totally sure <laughs> that this is the right thing I'm choosing here. What happens if I say no to this choice in front of me? What happens if I say yes? Sometimes you have to learn by trying, right? What happens if I speak up when I have something to say? What do I do if I totally just mess everything up and choose the wrong thing? All of these are good actions. You have to crack some eggs to make an omelet, right? You have to make some choices, and then sometimes you have to back up and correct mistakes you made. But with support and tools, you can have the freedom and fluidity to keep making mistakes and trying things and have your successes and take feedback from them and, and learn and progress and get through that developmental delay that happened to you because of your dysfunctional upbringing and mature and become fulfilled. I call it a developmental delay because in the family of origin, you didn't get to try the things that were necessary for you to develop because you were living in survival mode or you were getting put down or there wasn't the money. Now you get to try. And yes, it's scary. And yes, there are risks. But here's what keeps you strong. Good tools. There are many good tools out there. And if you want to use the tool that helped me move out of that trauma-driven state that I was in for decades, it's the daily practice. Sign up for that. Seriously. It's always down below. I'll point to it at the end of this video and you can click on it right there. It, it really is free. And if you sign up, you can join me in free Zoom calls where we use the techniques together and I answer questions. And it is an incredible experience for me every two weeks when I lead those calls. Hundreds of people come. These calls are the great joy of my life. I would love to meet you there. Um, you'll also need support from people in your life who are not part of your trauma-driven world, but part of your healing world. People who are walking the path of healing just like you. Ideally, you want them walking the same path so that you can support each other and trying to apply lessons that you're learning. Some people do that in 12-step programs. We have that here at Crappy Childhood Ferry in the membership community. That is something you might wanna check out. I can't say enough good things about the value of being in a group of people who get it, of people you can turn to and say, you know, I set a goal for myself to try to not uh, call this man and can I get your help? You know, I just feel like I'm gonna do it. Help is available. My healing started when I started going to a 12-step 
fellowship 29 years ago. And you know, at that time I had alienated all my friends and everybody needs friends. I needed a place where I could just hang out, where I had somewhere to go. I had a lot of crying to do. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened. And I maybe wasn't tuned in at first that this is what I needed, but I needed to listen. It was so helpful to me to listen to other people working out their own problems, working that 12-step program. So I then worked the program and pretty soon I was one of the people comforting the new people. It's been a very positive thing for me. And uh, meetings are available online. They're available in major cities and small cities. And, you know, I hope you'll give it a try. Most people who would be interested in Crappy Childhood Fairy qualify for at least one 12-step program. <laughs> so I know a lot of traumatized people really don't have cash. And that's why I'm emphasizing free tools and communities here in my programs. The Daily Practice Call, 12-step programs. Support is available if you're ready to reach for it. Now, people complain sometimes that in my videos I describe problems, but I don't describe the solution. So I gave you a little bit here. If you're like me, you know, you don't want to hear a bunch of platitudes about this. Like, you just need to love yourself like everybody else. You know, that that never helped me. Or, um, yeah, you know, hey, come on, everybody's traumatized. Get over yourself. If only, right? <laughs> so... A lot of what people told me would be helpful was vague and it didn't mean anything to me. And when I lacked the power to go, you know, do the research and change my life and find out what would work, it was so helpful when somebody came in and just pointed to something that was free, that was likely to work. That's what you can do here. Just keep watching the videos if nothing else. I've got your back. I'm notoriously practical. And when it comes to healing, I walk people step by step through practical ways to do it. There's, there's so much to say about the solution. <laughs> so check out my programs if you want to go deeper or just, you know, just watch the videos. Learn what you can today. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.